Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Full Life. Today we're talking a very important topic. We're talking about porn addiction. Stay with us. And welcome to another episode of The Full Life. Thank you for joining us today. Of course, you know this is the show that wants you to live every day to the fullest as God wants us to do. And if you're not, we hope that this show can be a little bit of part of that today and every day that you watch it. Uh, Today, as always, we're going to be tackling another topic that is so important in today's culture. But before we do that, I'm going to toss to Carolyn today for an encouraging word. What do you need to let go of that's holding you back from what all God has for you? I heard a story the other day about this girl that was driving down the road. And as she was driving down the road, she noticed somebody behind her. And the faster she went, the faster this car got. And, you know, as a woman, a single woman, when somebody's driving that close, your heart begins to speed up. And so she sped up and got over thinking, I'll get out of their way. And as she got over... The other car got over and she sped up a little bit more. It sped up a little bit more. And by this time, she's getting very scared. So she sees an exit and she pulls off as fast as she can. And there's this big truck stop. Her heart is racing. She's flying about 100 mile an hour, just trying to get in there. And as she's trying, she's trying to get the door open. And as she's screaming, God, help me, because the person's trying to get in the car. And the guy on the outside of the car says, I am trying to help you because somebody's in the back seat of your car. And, you know, every time I tell this story, I get chills in my heart because I think how many times are we fighting the very thing that's trying to save us? Some of you watching today, you know what I'm talking about because God is telling you to let go of what's in your hands so God can give you what's in his hands. What is holding you back? Is it unforgiveness today? Is it fear? Is it, I don't know what it is, but I'm asking you today, what do you need to let go of and let God fill back up with his love, his grace, his joy, his peace. He is bigger than anything you are facing I'm challenging you today, let go and let God, he is big and he loves you. Be encouraged. God bless you. Well, let's get to today's important discussion because certainly porn addiction robs us of a fullness of life that we are meant to have. And so I'm so excited to welcome our guest today. Amy Carmen is a Los Angeles-based licensed marriage and family therapist who treats those who suffer from trauma and addiction at her practice, Agape Christian Therapy. She's a wife, a mother of two small girls, and author of the book, A Power Greater Than You. I'm so pleased to welcome Amy Carmen. Hi, thanks for having me on this excellent talk show. <laughs> Well, I'll take it. Thank you so much for joining us, because I think that this is uh, certainly uh, an important topic. As I said, I think it's, it is some, something that is becoming widespread and something that a lot of people deal with and a lot of people deal with behind closed doors as we'll talk. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, the best way to start is tell us about tell us about you. Tell us your story. Tell us about your work. And we'll go from there. Like most good stories, I should begin with just 
the beginning, I was a scared little girl. I didn't feel like I belonged. I was insecure and had a lot of negative thoughts. And around the age of 13, when my mom was struggling with cancer, I, you know, oldest of four, a lot of responsibilities being put on me that I didn't used to deal with. And suddenly we got AOL and I found mm. chat rooms. And in the chat rooms, I pretended to be, I don't know why, but I just needed to be a 17 year old. And I was only mm. 13. So I was pretending to be this older kid and, um, men would ask me, you know, to send me their picture. And then I get all this praise. And I, I started to feel confident with that kind of an interaction, this longing just to be delighted in and wanted. I found that that was an outlet to feel good for a moment. And like all good dopamine addictions, I just kept going back for more and it got progressively worse as I aged onward, you know, it started acting out in real life and um, found porn. It actually, when I was like 19 and um, stumbled, stumbled into the, the darkness that mm. was exactly the inverse of what I was dealing with. I'm not good enough. I'm not wanted. I'm insecure. And then in the fantasy life, I'm confident. I'm loved i'm wanted i'm being pursued and and that's all the fantasy and then of course with addiction it gives you those worst feelings afterward of shame and uh, guilt you know i grew up catholic so there's a lot of guilt going on and if anybody really knew i thought for sure that i would be completely if i was lonely then i thought i'd be totally cast out and maybe even have to kill myself if someone found out the truth. Um, coming to Jesus at 21 and giving my life to him was a turning point. Nothing changed that day, but I got a sense of peace. I started feeling like I belonged in community. I uh, read in the scriptures that I was a jewel, that I was wonderfully made. I, I had no Bible study history, even though I went to a Catholic school and religion class my whole life, I did not know this Jesus that loved me and accepted me and forgave me. I knew the Bible stories, but I did not know that Jesus yep. intimately loved me in mm -hmm. this moment. I thought he was a historical figure that lived somewhere in some alternate reality. I didn't, I didn't know I could talk to him. And then exactly. I started talking to him and I said, do you want me to stop drinking a couple of years later? And I got sober and I Googled the 12 steps and um, started making amends to people willy-nilly, all out of order, with no sponsorship. And, um, I started awesome. serving. Like I just realized, like if I'm going to get out of my own head, I have to start focusing on other people. Mm. And what can I bring? What value can I bring to their lives? So one day, I volunteered to work. I went to Mosaic Church in Hollywood at the time sure. and um, volunteered for one of their plays and was doing prop mastering, which I had no experience and probably no right doing. Uh, but I let them borrow my old vintage iPod and, for one of their scenes. And I went to go get it one day and I just went out to a table. Do you have my iPod? I'm trying to get it back. And they're like, this is the Celebrate Recovery table. And little did they know that just a few months earlier, I had stopped drinking. I took their flyer and I showed up the next week and 
for, for two years, the same group of women, we went through the 12 steps as a group. And um, some of those ladies are still some of my closest confidants today. People I know I could call in a moment. Um, from there, I went to AA and I got licensed as a therapist. And um, I still regularly manage my symptoms of anxiety mm -hmm. or, um, you know, negative thinking. I have to use every and all the tools that work for me to, to not have to go back to those old ways ever again. Wow. You know, I think it's really powerful that you're talking about this because, you know, there's an old book, it's called The Lies That We Believe. And it's funny how mm. the enemy has a way to come and plant a seed. I say this all the time. All he has to do is plant because we water. And, and it's funny that, that how many kids, it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, are going through these lies that the enemy is telling me you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough. And then we listen and we watch all the things on television and all the things on books and magazines, and they're sending us these lies that this is what we're to compare to. And yet when you look into those people's lives, they're falling apart because it's nothing that really matters. But it's once again, another lie that we think their lives are perfect. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're, you're bringing it up um, because people don't realize that getting men to look at you is addictive because it's powerful. And I would love for you to share a little bit about that, about just the power that it gives, because it's not just men that deal with this. This is women very much that you see it all the time. They're addicted to the need for men's approval and sometimes even women's approval. Absolutely. That craving. Yeah. Uh, in AA, they call it the phenomenon of craving. It's mm. that it without even substances or porn, we that insecurity when we're not keeping our eyes on Jesus's love, it leads us to try to find false substitutes in the form of men's affection, you know, which inside of them may like they need they need the women to respond well so that they can feel good enough and our trauma cycles can all link in together. So yeah. in my private practice, you know, if I see couples, I see that that pairing that both of them are insecure. One of them is using porn to cope with it or some other form of, you know, maladaptive coping mechanism, which means that do it doesn't work. Maladaptive means it you it got created in youth and then now 20 years later, it's destroying your life. From what you've researched, uh, how do you see this particular side of addiction developing? Like how, where, where does it start and how does it snowball? Yeah, yeah with, with porn addiction, it, it is sadly, you know, the average age is like nine to 11. Um, so it starts in childhood. Often in our family systems, there's there's some sort of insecure attachment going on. It's not the parents' mm. fault. It's it's sin's fault. It's this is a generational transmission process throughout all the generations. If you keep going back through the family tree, there's there's a lack of uh, vulnerability, consistency, um, predictability. Maybe there's a rigid parent or a permissive parent. Um, the child is left wondering, am I wanted? Am I enough? It starts young, you know, if, even in infancy or toddlers or 
five-year-old, if they're not getting their feelings validated, welcomed, and accepted, they end up attaching these negative beliefs mm-hmm. about worth, usually. You're just going to get rejected, just like your dad rejected you when you turned to him with your sad feelings, or your mom rejected you when she was so busy she couldn't slow down to attune you. All of those things send those messages. And then the porn is it's like God can give us the belief that we're good enough, and porn can too. It's, it's a tricky, it, it's a shapeshifter. There's no one size answer here. Whatever you dealt with as a child, porn can solve for you. That's, that's the illusion. You know, I really just want to stay with that just a little bit about where porn develops because I'm wondering, are there emotional triggers? If you can just talk about that a little bit more. And then I think in the book, you also talk about like a seven minute feeling thing that you go through of visualizing God and what you say. If, if you could just share a little bit of that with us of how, how you walk through something Absolutely. like that for somebody watching. Yeah. So emotional triggers happen to all of us. You are human, so you have trauma. You've been through something. Um, I can think of a friend that I know who had a family member who would rage at them. And so anytime a female would get frustrated, that would trigger their same thoughts of I'm bad, I'm not safe, I'm misunderstood. It doesn't matter whether I say what I think and feel, it's just going to get dismissed. And so that became a self-fulfilling prophecy and they wouldn't share and then they would just shut down. And in their shutdown, they would use porn to feel safe and good enough and wanted. Um, So knowing what triggers you is one of the best things you could do for yourself, Uh, which means just watching your nervous system. Is your heart rate going up? Are you feeling irritated in your stomach? Does your jaw clench when you're around a certain person? Um, what, what is it that bumps you out of your resiliency? When we're in resiliency, we are able to think clearly, communicate, uh, seek help, ask for what we need, share openly. When we're out of it, we tend to eat or hide or fight, have defenses. Uh, If you find yourself flooded or slightly irritated or fearful, I would recommend pausing using the power of the pause. And one of the tools I use in my practice is picturing a safe place. So that's day one. This is something I do with all clients. I have my clients picture beach or mountain scene. So something calm and peaceful somewhere they've been before or something they can imagine until their body feels like they're there. And Mm. I use what's called bilateral stimulation. So trauma is stored uh, in one side of the brain and our logic is up here in the front. So if we do things like tap like this, it helps both sides of the brain to communicate with Mm. itself and have a little conversation. And in resourcing, a resource is a strength. Jesus is a resource. Friends can be resources. Pets, our own strengths, Um, images of peaceful places. So just starting with the basic, a peaceful place. If you picture that and you hold that calm feeling inside at the same time, 
and do really slow tapping like this, that can hold that image and the feeling together. What fires together, wires together. So just like with porn, when we watch it and we have that pleasure, maybe we masturbate to orgasm and um, those images and that feeling get all linked together, it's really hard for the brain to separate it, you know. Um, on the flip side, on a positive note, if we picture the beach regularly and we let ourselves feel that soothing feeling, we simply can add a word in like relax and do another round of tapping. Okay. Then when we're stressed, we can say to ourselves, relax and go to that, that place and our body will respond as if we're there. With porn, when we're watching it, our brains actually don't know that we're not doing it. Wow. Oh, yeah. Our brains, when we show images or we visualize and we fantasize, our body responds as if it's actually happening. Just like if an Olympic runner it visualizes their race, if they have electrodes attached to them, the same muscles will fire as if they're actually running the race. So it really is a programming is what you're saying, sort of, right? It's almost like a food addiction. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm asking because it's like when you when you feel that feeling of powerless, what I'm hearing you like, you you get those triggers of I feel powerless or someone makes you says something that makes you um, feel out of control. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of that kind of stuff that people, their brain clicks in to like, I need my strength back. So they go to that because they, is that true? Like it's where yeah. they feel like they get their power. It and can so be if that's what it is that they deal with, but every okay. single human has their, their own unique okay. inside struggle and, and they'll have their own body sensations. They feel when they're triggered, their own negative thinking, and it's never conscious. They're, it's not like, oh, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to get stressed and then I'm going to use porn to sleep tonight. It's a habit that has been formed over years. And okay. habits are really hard to break. It's just like food addiction. Have you guys ever tried to quit sugar? Holy moly. <laughs> doing it right now. <laughs> you are. I feel for you. What happens is the body it goes into a holy moly mode. And, yes. it, and I, you know, it's incredibly hard to to stop using the thing we need for emotional comfort. And, and with that, we're, we feel even more feelings and we don't have the thing that we were used to and we're learning how to get the new thing at the same time. That's why, you know, there's so much relapse with pornography. It's so accessible. At least with sugar, you, you can get it out of your house. Pornography can show up just driving by a billboard. Right. It can it can be activated at the gym. In essence, some people might consider it a tool. Now, if that were the case, what would you say to someone who who thought that way? Yeah. Oh, I need porn so that I mm -hmm. can feel better. I would say you're not alone. I've been there. Me too. I am free from it. And I'm telling you on the other side is more peace. Uh, mm -hmm. more awareness of what triggers you. And actually, when you know what triggers you, you can do trauma work on the roots so mm -hmm. that over time you become more still waters inside. Or if you just get bumped up a little bit, you know <sighs> to take those deep belly breaths instinctively. You start practicing the new habit and you get you get sec it becomes second nature. Yeah, as I'm, I'm sitting here nodding as I'm hearing the stories and ask and hearing as you answer, ask questions, Carolyn, because just like uh, Amy, this has been the struggle of my life. 
I mean, this has been something that I've had to deal with for a long time. And so that's why I also feel like it's so important to let it out for people and let, let them know that they're not the only ones hiding in the shadows. And that's why I felt like we had to do this part of the reason why. And I think a lot of people are dealing with it. I, I've heard statistics were like something like 50% of pastors are, are dealing with this now. It's, it's, it's yeah. a big, it's a big pervasive problem. Um, so hopefully this show can bring some healing. And to that point, when you were talking about trauma trauma and treating that trauma, I want to talk about that concept of the uh, Jesus as the ultimate healer, allowing him to heal you and where that relationship is with work in therapy. Because I feel sometimes there might still be a little bit of a stigma with that. And, oh, I, I, why am I going to therapy? I don't need therapy. You know, I'm, you know, so speak to that and how those can work in hand in hand. First of all, Joseph, thank you so much for sharing about your personal battle. I mean, that it's not easy. Like it's not easy for me to talk about it. It's not, it wasn't easy for me to write this book. I, you know, kept stalling um, in the editing process because my inner 13 year old was saying, what are we doing? What are we telling? And so it's my job, you know, what I have learned personally from therapy is that I get to parent myself today. I get, I am, I'm the mature therapist that can be there for her. I get to say, oh, honey, I, I feel you inside. Like, that's not adult me. Adult me really does want to say this stuff. Um, but I have to honor that younger part that, that isn't still questions. Will I be accepted? Will people, yep. you know, will I get made fun of for this? And um, so I just want to validate that that was hard and I'm really proud of you. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. It was okay. kind of hard, but yeah. I will, I, but I, I felt like the way people were talking was the right thing to do because yeah. I need to, I needed to tell people that, it, you know, it happens, it happens, yeah. you know, that's what we're here to do so we can I, heal. I, I would call it that porn addiction is an epidemic. One time I heard that they, someone tried to do a study and they couldn't find a control group at a college campus, meaning 0% of the people that they asked had not looked at porn, <laughs> which means 100% of the people that they were, the sample had looked, which didn't give them anything they could compare. It means we're all struggling with insecurity and using these other things to cope. Uh, what I want to speak to is the where the intersection between faith and therapy. I come from. I'm a Christian therapist because I'm a Christian, and I cannot do counseling without Jesus in me, in the room, and between me and the client. So, for for example, when we do the resourcing piece, one of the next parts that I like to bring in is Jesus sitting there in that safe place. You know, His mm. presence. And this is for about, you know, I would say 20% of clients is extremely uncomfortable. It's, it's a moment where they, they're realizing Jesus loves me and I have not been able to let that in, in this area. Mm -hmm. And there he is in whatever form they're imagining or symbolizing. There's a discomfort there because mm. that younger part didn't know Jesus didn't know that they could have turned to him for support. Mm -hmm. you know, they just didn't know. Um, I think we can get sober with just Jesus. I think that's a possibility. I also, I'd like to just be a facilitator because when we're going into those old trauma memories, 
the younger parts sometimes forget that Jesus exists. Mm. The younger parts, sometimes we become blended with our inner 13-year-old or whatever age and their thinking process or their emotions are so big and they flood our adult selves. Having a therapist just contain it and um, provide a dual awareness. So they're thinking about the memory and then the, the therapist saying, you know, keep one foot there in the memory and one foot with me and Jesus here in this present moment. That, that keeps their adult brain online and, and gives them the ability to come mm. back with Jesus into that, that, what I would call an exiled child's living quarters in the brain and, and rescue them out of that despair, out of the loneliness, out of the insecurity, so that the adult self and Jesus, and I'm just kind of there. Sometimes I feel like I'm not even part of it. I'm just there like getting to witness it. And that's really special. It would be interesting to hear you share um, how people get over the shame and the guilt. I think there's people probably watching this that they are in the middle of that shame and the guilt. I mean, it is hard to talk about it. So how do you get them past that moment to be able to open up and say, hey, I, I need help. This is a problem. How do you do that? That's a great question. And, and again, it's not a one size fits all. If these things have to be tailored to the individual, what are they believing about themselves? What is their history? What do they believe Jesus is thinking about them? And when did they start feeling that way? Probably with an attachment figure or a sibling or an aunt or something, a bully. Um, so going back to those trauma roots and recognizing that 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 has nothing to do with Jesus. We're projecting that onto him. Um, and, and I will tell you, the place where it starts breaking off is when they start to grieve, when their adult self feels so much compassion for that younger self that they're grieving because their heart is broken about this child that did not get what they needed then. Yeah. And the gratitude comes in at that point. I can get it now. When you had talked about uh, putting Jesus into the room, uh, I found that to be just hugely courageous, uh, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. for people, because I feel like we're taught, actually, from pop culture that sex is something that you desire, but it's also something to be shamed. Like, right. how many times have we seen the old adage or cliche where the romantic couple in the movie are about ready to get more amorous and they end up turning around the picture of Jesus or the statue of Mary, mm, you know, in the room good. and whatnot, you know what yeah. I mean? And so thinking about trying to bring those icons back into the room to talk about that thing. I mean, that's, that's, that's deep. That's a lot of work. Um, and that being said, how, how can a porn addiction uh, affect relationships? It's a really good question. So porn addiction affects all of our relationships. First of all, it affects our relationship with ourselves. We, have a hard time having inner security because the very thing that we're using is disrupting our own ability to feel our emotions and process them in a healthy way. We're using porn as a substitute to numb out or to get a release, to get some sort of positive false feeling. And if we're getting that from porn, instead of sitting in the hard feelings with each other, which is incredibly bonding, that's going to affect boyfriend, girlfriend relationships, marriages, and even friendships, you know, we, we lose the privilege of getting to know each other and find, you know, through vulnerability and depth. 
we struggle with intimacy outside of the bedroom. And in a typical male-female marriage, the if the if let's say the male is the porn addict, they are typically likely to withdraw emotionally and, and deal with it on their own. Whereas the the women will will be like, why don't you ever open up with me? Why can't we get closer? And they, with their own insecurity, will start questioning. Maybe I'm. Maybe it's my body. Maybe I'm not good enough. And maybe they'll start oh, wow. doing more, and they become kind of overfunctioners. Now that's a very stereotypical d- dynamic. It can definitely be the reverse, where you know maybe a male porn addict has a lot of feelings, and they're a highly sensitive person, and they 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 just don't know how to be manly and so sensitive. There's a lot of shame over that part. I, I kind of come at it with the belief that, you know, we're not just one part inside. We're many parts. You know, we have our creative selves. We have our more serious parts of us, our emotional sides. And if there, if something is out of whack, if it's not part of the healthy system, our partner is going to feel that. And that affects sex. Like healthy sex gets affected when there's not emotional intimacy. Mm. It's really hard to have eradicate erotic experiences that feel safe and vulnerable. You know, it's funny that you're talking about this because I was watching a TED talk one day on a guy who was not a Christian and he was talking about why he stopped watching porn. And it was very interesting to hear this man who his whole life, it started when he was very young. I mean, um, he just said that he stopped watching it because he realized that it was messing with his mind and his intimacy with someone that he fell in love with because he said it so teaches you that it's all about the moment, but not really about the touch. If you watch it, there's never no touching. There's never any love. There's never any holding. He said it's it's all about just, you know what I'm talking about. It's all mm-hmm. about. And, and he said that he. Gratification, to, basically. Yes. And he said yeah. that. He began to long for that. Mm-hmm. He began, he got in a relationship, fell in love with this girl. And all of a sudden he wanted to hold her. He wanted to kiss her. He wanted the friendship element, the the romance element. And, and that is not what porn gives you. Porn touches on dopamine. And dopamine is the thing, the chemical in our brain responsible for pleasure. And when we use porn to get our dopamine fix, we our brain becomes dependent on it and it needs more and more, more than you would ever need on an average day. And when we stop, it can plummet us into depression. We don't have that fix. So finding other healthy ways simultaneously while you're giving up sugar or porn or food, whatever, uh, you got to figure out what gives you dopamine. I love to rollerblade. I love to hike. I like to bike. I like to be active. I like to sit with women and drink coffee together. I like to write and paint and dance. So anything that I can do that that gives my brain healthy dopamine while those old neural pathways are dying is something mm. you know we've got we got to figure out what is your unique dopamine fix that is not porn. And it's never mm. going to feel as good as porn. And you're always going to miss it. There's always going to be that little part of you that's like, oh, I wish I could just, it's, oh, I just need it on hard days. And on those days, you got to have that community around you that you have been habitually calling, even if you didn't feel like it, even if you had a great couple months, 
you have those habits going every Wednesday. I call my sponsor. Then you call your sponsor on Wednesday and you get to get ahead of it. Um, porn affects, you know, we objectify women in pornography. Uh, there's this irrational, you know, view of what a man and a woman look like. Their bodies are augmented. There's lighting and makeup. They are often on drugs and starving. Um, there, it's not a reality. And and there's this a lot of violence and a sense of you know the man is on top and he's very powerful. Or there's this you know dominance and submissive piece. It's in a healthy relationship. That's all communicated. Um, but fantasy and desires are all welcome. But if porn is running the show, it can it, we can begin to expect things that you're just never probably going to get, or at least to that extent, to that, you know, fantasy life. But right. On the flip side, if you do have desires, like if something turns you on, that's okay. Like we're allowed to be sexual beings. God made us that way. There's no shame in our sexuality, mm. in our um, arousal. And I mean, horniness is an emotion, right? And yeah. so if we, if something turns us on, that's information. Just like, oh, something scares me. Some of that might be because we have habitually looked at big boobs on the internet. So every time we see a big boob, we get an arousal. And using cognitive behavioral therapy can be really helpful. You know, if I don't have this element that I think I need because of porn, I won't be satisfied. The truth is you you feel that way. Those feelings are valid. You're scared that you're going to be disappointed if you don't get this, this element, but you will learn to be satisfied or you will adjust. And mm -hmm. maybe something is important to you. Maybe you do have a preference and that's okay too. Like we're allowed, you know, like just like with fashion, we're allowed to have our preferences with what we like to wear or the type of car we want to own or the kind of dog we like. It's okay. Like some of this is just authentic humans. Porn makes us think, oh my gosh, I'm getting aroused. This, this is because I'm a bad person. This is because of, and so right. the piece that follows looking at porn is like, how do you feel about using porn to cope with your anxiety disorder? How do you feel about using porn to get your power? That's, that's usually the last piece of working through in my office is, processing the trauma that porn has caused and, and grief about, you know, what porn has made us believe about ourselves because we've used it. Can you talk a little bit about uh, people who are bringing it into their marriage and what is the dangers of that? If a couple is doing it together and that's something they've decided is okay with them, I mean, it's not my place to judge. I'm here to help those who want to get help, who identify with struggling with addiction. Um, just like, you know, alcoholism, it's up to the alcoholic to identify. It's, mm. it's not my place to say, you know, you're, no one should ever look at pornographic images. I don't know what God feels about that. It's, I, I, I don't think that it's good for them. Like in my heart of hearts, I can kind of sense that, that that the possibility for that to lead to something that could right. hurt them. How do they sort it out? Are they avoiding by using the porn? Are they using it as a substitute for, you know, the hard work of figuring out each other's bodies and what actually makes each other feel good? Are they using that instead of communicating their needs in a direct right. way? I don't have so many questions for that particular hypothetical couple. 
like you said, it's it's kind of on a case by case basis. Like each one has their own issues that they're dealing yeah. with. Yeah, I always encourage you know the spouses, whether it's a male or a female, to go and get help, whether the addict wants it or not. Because if one member of a system changes, the whole system can change. Like it yeah. starts with us. Like if we keep fighting this fight of learning new coping mechanisms, like maybe we cut out sugar so that we don't have our moods going like this. Mm -hmm. Maybe we add meditation into the mix so that we can change the brain chemistry within. Um, anything we can do to be healthy, you know, that changes, that's good for the body of Christ. It's good for our family systems. It's good as parents. It's good as spouses. Um, anything we can do. You talked, uh, we've talked a lot about it, but you mentioned vulnerability and also like having a sponsor. And I know in the book, you talk about how even vulnerability is a powerful tool to not go to that addiction, you know, being, having a, a vulnerable relationship and intimate relationship with people really sort of fulfills some of those same things if we actually are being vulnerable in a meaningful way. So can you talk about, you know, how people maybe could build some of those vulnerable relationships, those supports That's that good. might help them form some structure away from that addiction? Absolutely. Shane tells us if we open up, we are going to get rejected. And so working with a therapist can be as a friend of mine calls it, kind of a petri dish. It's it's where we go to practice these these patterns of opening up. Um, I I use a form of therapy um, AEDP, it, which is basically if you were to share something vulnerable with me, I ask you how does it feel to share with me, and almost always it's like uh, not comfortable, and I say what do you. What do you think I'm thinking and feeling towards you? And nine times out of 10, someone might say, I think you're judging me. And I'll be like, is that my face? Like, maybe I am looking judgmental this today. And no, no, it's nothing you're doing. Actually, I think you are accepting me. And so holding that um, expectation of what shame has told them will happen, the rejection, and, and the reality of, Here's somebody who's saying, I'm right here with you. I'm so glad you shared this with me. I have empathy towards you. And I get to even say that, you know, actually, it couldn't be further from the truth. I have so much compassion for you. It's an honor to be here with you right now. Often, you know, that breaks down a lot of the defenses that they need to have to protect themselves from the fear of rejection. And they almost always expect the other person to have this awful reaction. And sometimes they do. Like sometimes they're dealing with a difficult personality. And we all have that in our lives, like people that are harder for us for, mm -hmm. because of our trauma usually. And so we practice that, you know, even in this moment, I'm having a hard time saying it because of, the, of what you're saying to me right now. That moment can be incredibly powerful for the other person to see this person is, is not going to give up on, on letting them know that this doesn't feel good. And whether that person says, I'm sorry, or has empathy, it's for us. Anytime we're vulnerable, it's good for us. You know, the, mm -hmm. I would add, it's really important to practice being vulnerable with God, you know, in our prayer life, letting him know, Lord, I'm really scared about this upcoming event, I need your peace. I'm afraid, you know, 
that I'm going to be alone. Would you just remind me that you're here with me? Well, that was something I was going to mention too, because in the book you talk a lot about uh, in, in two different times, writing letters to Jesus, writing specifically about certain things to Jesus, part of a journal, bigger journaling process that you can use as a technique, you know, so I just wanted to talk about that for a moment, just as a technique that, you know, if you can sort of, it goes along with the seven minutes thing where you kind of just sort of talking, taking yourself out of what's triggering, so to speak. Absolutely. So two amazing tools. We talked about regulating the nervous system by picturing the beach or the mountains. It takes seven minutes for the nervous system to reset itself. So if you're meditating or visualizing and you're coming out of a triggering moment, at least give yourself seven minutes to catch your breath. Seven minutes for that parasympathetic nervous system to come back online. Hmm. We want to get out of the sympathetic nervous system, which is that fight or flight. We can't even digest well or think about sex or, you know, sometimes we have to pee really bad when we're in the fight or flight or, um, or we can't pee at all <laughs> or we feel frozen or we just like people we can't eat. Or, we can't yeah. eat. Our stomachs hurt, right? It's all in here. There's so many nerves. The nervous system runs through the center of the body. And so regulate, giving yourself those seven minutes once a day for starters can be, for your mental health, really helpful. The other piece is introspection. So if you're not getting therapy, which is a healthy, kind mirroring of what the therapy, you know, what I'm hearing you say is this, we can hear ourselves back when a therapist reflects or a good friend listens to us or a pastor reflects our feelings back to us. Journaling can be super introspective. You know, we can say whatever we feel without the fear that another person is going to judge us or react poorly. We can communicate with our inner kiddos. Hey, 13-year-old me, how are you feeling about this podcast today? 13-year-old me, I don't like it. Tell me more about that. I'm afraid they're going to judge me. Yes, they totally could. I'm, we don't know them. They might. And that would say more about them. Than you, you know, and I can, I can empathize with it. that would suck. And if at all we feel judged, you know, adult me is here to say, Hey, I'm not feeling totally safe in this moment. Is there a way you could rephrase that? And so I work it all out in my journal. Um, journaling actually proceeded. It went Jesus, then journaling, then sobriety. So journaling is where, you know, I, I started to hear my own thinking patterns reflected back to me. Um, I started asking questions like, I feel like maybe I should stop doing this and that. Mm -hmm. And and that's really how I write books is I write one day at a time. I yeah. journal and then I write a little and it's um, become life changing. It's a habit that I need in order to feel sane every day, just as much as I need Jesus. Can you well, go I back? Just... You, you had said something earlier about, uh, I think it was sympathetic versus parasympathetic. What, what are the two differences there? Sure. Our autonomic nervous system gets activated when our brain perceives a threat. And then we Ooh. shift into our sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight or flight. It's when we want to fight back with our defenses or withdraw, shut down, okay. freeze, like a rape victim maybe might go into a freeze mode. And you know, people would say, why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you scream out? Their sympathetic nervous system thinks they're going to die. And so they just put them into that kind of freeze state. It's, you know, better to pretend like you're kind of a dead than, you know, to maybe get worse things happen. 
And then the parasympathetic, the way we get that online is to start taking deep belly breaths. So I, a helpful reminder, I use the word para, I think about a paramedic and mm. they are always so cool and calm when they're coming to help the patient. So our adult selves have to be that for our inner kiddos, like those parts of us that are more sensitive. We mm. have to be that, provide the serenity and the calmness and the daily activities that make us feel as soothed and as chill as possible. And then I think about, you know, sympathetic, like I need sympathy right now. I'm really freaking out. And so if you ever need to, a little helpful way of reminding yourself, that's what I use. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Thank you very much. Amy, you are the therapist we all need to get to. Thank you so much for joining us for a, a really Absolutely. great long discussion. Hey, the book, I book. was going to say, is a power greater than you. Yeah. And we didn't even get to half of this the insights and techniques and stuff that she talks about in that book. So I encourage you all to get it. Um, I believe it's Amazon or where, where else can they can get it anywhere or yeah on Amazon or you can go to my website agapechristiantherapy.com and there's a page on there that will bring you to Amazon terrific now let's talk about the fullness of prayer um, probably my first intro to prayer that I remember is from Muslims, actually. And so for that, at least as a little kid, it seemed very methodical. Um, it seemed very, um, I don't say rehearsed, but it was just like you learned the prayers and you said them. Um, but I think as I grew um, with, as I had Christians in my life investing in me and I grew up in Christian faith, I also saw prayer as something that, you know, um, was powerful. You know, when we had something in trouble or something wrong or we needed God's help, we can call out to him. Um, so I think I pray in different ways. I mean, I think there's sometimes where I pray for intercessory prayer. I think there's sometimes where I pray to stay connected to God. There's sometimes where I pray by shutting my mouth and listening to God. Um, so I think I've learned that, you know, prayer is relying on God for, you know, provision, for peace, to protect us. Um, prayer is personal. Um, I think it's got to be honest and vulnerable. I think it's got to be a chance to build your relationship. Um, prayer is also conversational, uh, which means, again, it's not just about what we have to say. Um, our best relationships are conversational. And in those relationships, we can't talk all the time. Um, so I've had to learn that prayer is also listening, um, trying to rest in the spirit um, and let the spirit speak to me. Um, and I guess also I would say prayer is invitational. Uh, it's amazing to me that the God of the universe uh, desires to hear from us, uh, desires union with us, stoops down to hear us. Um, and yeah, it's, it's an invitation every time to stay connected with God. As for what prayer does, um, I found that it grows your faith. Um, it grows your trust in God. It grows your dependence in God and then builds that relationship with God. If you heard us talking about this topic today and said you know, this is me, I'm struggling with this. As we said, you know, it's time, we hope that you can feel like you can be vulnerable. We encourage you to be vulnerable because we don't want you living in shame because there is no way you can live the fullness of life that God wants in shame, in, 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 uh, in hiddenness, in, uh, you know, fear, you know, so I encourage you all, if this touches you today, you know, Go seek a go seek a, a therapist. Go seek Jesus. 
please ask him to open your heart and ask you to take one little, one more step toward vulnerability. And uh, we hope and pray for the best and for the healing of, of anyone who this touches. Yeah, don't we'll give up. You. Don't okay. give up. If one day at a time. You're so worth continuing to try new things for. You're so worth the love that Jesus has for you. Just keep trying to let it in a little bit more each day. Amen. And of course, we'll see you next time on The Full Live for more conversations. See you then.